For some time, I have been studying about a subject that I wanted to share with you. This evening, it is my privilege. I've given it this title, The Most Expensive Wool in the History of the World. The Most Expensive Wool in the History of the World. Now, there was nothing extraordinary about the sheep that this wool came off of. There were millions of sheep like them before and since. It is the shepherd that's outstanding. See him as he leads his flock over the deserts of Midian, searching for the green valleys, for pasture, and the cool water springs. Who is he anyway? Rather, who was he? For he's a has-been. That man out there leading those flocks was many things. Now he's just a shepherd. He was the heir apparent to the throne of Egypt, the great empire of that time. The Bible tells us something about the experience of Moses in Acts, the seventh chapter and the twenty-second verse. I'd like to have you look at this text and then imagine using a man like that to herd sheep. See if you think it's good economics. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. In Egypt was no stone age kingdom. They weren't like the Hottentots or other savages. They excelled in arts and sciences, and Moses was learned in everything that they knew. He had native ability. He was a genius. Perhaps I should read this statement concerning Moses. You will find it in the book of Deuteronomy, the last chapter, the tenth verse. There arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was not only great in the eyes of men, he was great in the eyes of God. You say, well, that's talking about him after he did that great work of delivering Israel. True. But that's the point. With such a past and such a future, what's he doing out there in the desert herding sheep? Behind him, the throne of the world's greatest empire, ahead of him, an experience that marks him for all time, is without a peer, as a historian, a poet, a philosopher, a lawgiver, and a great general and deliverer of a nation. Why in between herding sheep? And why, of all things, 40 years of it? How much an hour do you suppose he was worth? Some months ago, I was called upon to consult a certain man in connection with some legal matters. 
I talked to him for, oh, I suppose an hour, and you know what it cost us? Fifty dollars. That's expensive talk, wasn't it? Yes. But Moses was worth a great deal more than fifty dollars an hour. His time was worth more than that down in Egypt. And yet here he is herding sheep. Do you agree with me that that's expensive wool that comes off the back of those sheep that he's leading? The most expensive wool in the history of the world. I can fancy that a number of people made comments about it and thought what a shame it was to use such talent for such common things. It may be that somebody came along and said to Moses, Moses, what in the world are you doing here anyway, a man with your talent and training? Why, anybody can do this. And of course, Moses, you're not anybody, you're somebody. Well, that's the question. Why is he there? Men never would have planned it that way, that's certain. In fact, we're told in the book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 247, man would have dispensed with that long period of toil and obscurity, deeming it a great loss of time. But infinite wisdom called him who was to become the leader of his people to spend 40 years in the humble work of a shepherd. Men would have dispensed with it. They would have thought it was a what? A great loss of time. Now with that, I want to put this matchless statement in the book Education, page 64. Speaking of these 40 years in the desert, infinite wisdom counted not the period too long or the price too great. Was it too long? No, it wasn't too long. Was the price too great? No. What happened to the wool is incidental. What happened to the shepherd is of great importance, dear friends. You know, one of these days, you and I, if faithful, are going to join in singing a song on the sea of glass. You remember? John writes about it in Revelation 15. He heard the 144,000 singing it. And he tells us it's the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And somehow I believe, friends, that the ones down here in this last generation that sing the song of Moses will have learned some things from the experience of Moses. In fact, we're told, by inspiration, consider the experience of Moses. So I propose that we do that tonight. And I propose that we focus especially on this question. Why is he herding sheep? And why is he doing it for 40 years? That's the question. Now, to understand that, we shall have to see some things that happened before that period in the desert. And also to appreciate it, we'll need to note some of the things afterward. You remember, of course, his birth. 
and the interesting experiences in connection with it. Stephen, in this speech that we quoted from a moment ago in Acts, the seventh chapter, says, in which time Moses was born. Why at that particular time? Well, a deliverer was to be born. And Satan, knowing that a deliverer was to be born, set in motion some oppressive laws. He moved upon Pharaoh to command that all the baby boys be thrown in the river or otherwise killed when they were born. He was trying to destroy that deliverer that was to come. Just as hundreds of years later, he tried to destroy the Savior when he was born in Bethlehem. But you remember that God, in his infinite wisdom, he allowed the devil to put that machinery in motion and then use that very thing to bring about something wonderful. For instead of Moses being destroyed, he was discovered there in the little ark, in the bulrushes, by the daughter of the king of Egypt, and through that wonderful arrangement of God moving upon little Miriam and the others, it was finally arranged, you remember, that Moses was brought up by his own mother, and she was paid wages for it. How the devil must have gnashed his teeth and writhed in agony over that turn of affairs. That's the way God does things. He lets the devil go so far. And then he lets him hang himself with his own rope. So for 12 years, Moses was trained by his mother, Jochebed. She was a slave. But she was being paid by the daughter of the king of Egypt to train this boy. My dear friends, I wonder how many of us as parents would be more faithful if we knew we only had just 12 years. I don't know whether when she started out she knew she had that long or not. I doubt it. She didn't know when Moses would be taken away. She did her job well. God let her keep Moses for 12 years. And she poured into that young heart the truths of God. She taught him how foolish idol worship was. She told him the stories of creation, of Noah, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of Joseph. Those very stories that years later, out there with the sheep, he was to write down in this wonderful book of Genesis. She taught him obedience, faithfulness, loyalty. And when Moses was finally taken at the age of 12 years to the court of Pharaoh, something had gotten into that young boy's heart that never left him. Never left him. In all those years, with the teachers and the priests and the princes of Egypt, not once did Moses compromise his principles of loyalty to the true God. Not once did he bow to idols. Not once did he waver in his allegiance to the creator of the universe. That's a marvelous record. Ponder it. Think of the influence of early training 
the importance of true education in the early years. Think of what an influence it must have had all through the court of Egypt. There was a man who was the crown prince, heir apparent, and yet he was true to the worship of the God of the Hebrews, those despised slaves down there in the land of Goshen. We're told that the priests of Egypt were given the job of converting Moses to the religion of Egypt. He was told that it was impossible for him to be king and cling to the worship of Jehovah. For part of the responsibilities of the king of Egypt was in connection with the religion of Egypt. But I want you to listen to this wonderful description of Moses' attitude. Patriarchs and Prophets 245. Moses, as the heir apparent, was to be initiated into the mysteries of the national religion. This duty was committed to the priests. But while he was an ardent and untiring student, he could not be induced to participate in the worship of the gods. He was threatened with the loss of the crown and warned that he would be disowned by the princes should he persist in his adherence to the Hebrew faith. But he was unshaken in his determination to render homage to none save the one God, the maker of heaven and earth. He reasoned with priests and worshippers, showing the folly of their superstitious veneration of senseless objects. None could refute his arguments or change his purpose. Isn't that a record, friends? Don't need to worry about a young man like that, do we? No. He can go to the University of Egypt. He can go through all the courses in philosophy, in theology, in psychology, and all the rest. And he comes forth still a champion of Jehovah. I say we don't need to worry about a young man like that. And so time goes on. Moses' education is carried to the very pinnacle. He's trained not only in logic and religion and arts and sciences, he's trained in the military tactics. He becomes a general. We are told that he became so successful that on one occasion, through his genius, he was able to win a most striking victory over the enemies of Egypt as he led the army. And on his return from that expedition, all the armies of Egypt sang his praises. But it's Moses. And yet, friends, he didn't give the glory to the gods of Egypt. He didn't bow down to those senseless idols. He kept his faith in God as the creator. And through it all he cherished the thought which had been taught him by his mother and which had been revealed to him personally by angels that he was to be the deliverer of Israel. And he made the choice not merely once, but again and again, that he would accept that call, that he would answer that challenge, that instead of accepting the throne of Egypt, he would cast his lot with the despised Hebrews and lead them 
to escape from that slavery in which they were. You know, as I look at that picture, friends, I can't help but think, surely everyone would have thought everything is ready to go. Here's a man that's had the highest training, and with it, he hasn't lost his vision. He's had all the education that can be given, and still, he hasn't denied his God. He has genius, talent, training, experience, position, influence, and he's ready to throw it all into the work of God and help God do his work and deliver his people. I wonder what we'd do if we had a man like that to rally around. I suppose, friends, we would be greatly pleased and cheered and think certainly now is the time. Let's turn over to Hebrews 11 and read about how Paul speaks of this decision that uh, Moses made. It's a wonderful description. 24th verse, Hebrews 11. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. He turned his back on the gods of Egypt and kept his face on that one true God. He forsook the throne of Egypt and cast in his lot with the race of slaves, God's chosen people. Now I ask it very simply, friends, what more could you ask? What more could you ask of Moses? I'll say this, friends. There are plenty of people that have today far less than he had when he was 40 years of age that think they're all ready to help finish the work. They have less of education, both human and divine, and less of loyalty, and yet think they're all ready. All they need is an opportunity. Well, Moses not only had all this training and talent and genius and devotion and dedication and loyalty, the opportunity presented itself, or so he thought. Down there visiting his brethren, he saw an Egyptian wronging one of them. And that cruel Egyptian moved the heart of Moses to do something, the cruelty that he saw. He killed him, hid his body in the sand. And do you know what Moses thought? Moses thought that the Israelite, seeing what he was doing, and other Israelites hearing of it, would understand that Moses was ready to forsake the throne of Egypt and lead his people to victory. But we find something quite interesting returning to Stephen's account, Acts 7. You know, it's interesting how many things about the Old Testament we find recorded in the New Testament. I mean, how many facts of history? Acts 7, 23. Well, we'll begin again with the 22nd verse. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. 
And when he was full forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. Now listen. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. What did he suppose? Why, he thought they would understand that it was time to move and that Moses was the man. He supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. Apparently, the only reaction he got was that the next day, when he tried to reprove one Israelite who was oppressing another Israelite, the man just turned in an impudent way, defied him. said, are you going to kill me like you did that Egyptian yesterday? And Moses saw two things there and within the next little while. He saw that his own people weren't ready to respond. And he also, very soon, learned that Pharaoh had heard about this and that Pharaoh was ready to kill him. And what did Moses do? Well, he fled. That's what the 29th verse says. Then fled Moses at this saying and was a stranger in the land of Midian. That's where he was doing the shepherd's work, taking care of these flocks for 40 years. We're told, friends, that as that experience happened and Moses made his way to Midian, that he was accounted a splendid failure. A splendid failure. And that's why I said a while ago that when you ask who is that man leading those flocks, the answer is not who is he, who was he? He's a has-been. A splendid failure. He was the general of all the armies of Egypt, but now he's just looking after some sheep. He was the heir apparent to the throne of the great empire, but now he's just working for his father-in-law. What a come down. And Moses himself, friends, don't forget it, Moses himself was thoroughly whipped. He felt defeated. He lost all idea that anything was going to happen down in Egypt, at least anything that he would have anything to do with. And for 40 years, he stayed out there in the desert, and then God called him. He said, Moses, I'm ready now. And together we're going to do this. What happened during the 40 years? And why did it have to happen? You'll think of a number of reasons, perhaps. I'd like to have us ponder especially two. Two great reasons that Moses couldn't do it when he was 40 years of age. Two great reasons that he had to get out there in the desert with the sheep. The first, friends, is that while Moses had maintained his allegiance to God down there in Egypt, he had come so to be influenced by the processes, processes of the education to which he was exposed that he became a great reasoner. 
and to some extent he was substituting reason for faith. And God cannot use a man in that state of mind for a great work. In Patriarchs and Prophets, page 247, I read, In slaying the Egyptian, Moses had fallen into the same errors so often committed by his fathers of taking into their own hands the work that God had promised to do. Now notice, Moses' mistake was not in apostasy. Moses didn't give up the truth. He never did. Moses wasn't one who went on out to shine in the world. But what did he do? Oh, watch it, friends. He tried to apply worldly wisdom to the doing of the work of God. He tried to take that logic and that reason and that thinking things through that he had learned in the halls of the great universities of Egypt. He tried to apply that to delivering the people of God. Well, of course, why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he? He was putting all he had into it, and that's just the point. All he had was going into it, and he had too much of something. Taking into their own hands the work that God had promised to do. It was not God's will to deliver his people by warfare, as Moses thought, but by his own mighty power that the glory might be ascribed to him alone. Moses was not prepared for his great work. There you have it. Moses thought. He had it all figured out how it was going to be. To him it was very clear why he thought, see, God gave me an early training with my mother to keep me loyal. Then he's brought me up here with, the, with Pharaoh uh, to get all this wonderful training in military science and in organization and administration and leadership, why, we're ready. And Lord, you can have it all. I'm willing to use it all for you. Israel, come. Let's go. I'll lead you to victory the way I led those Egyptian armies to victory. Moses was not prepared. He was substituting reason for faith. Human works. He was substituting for divine revelation, following the blueprint. Now there's a second great reason, friends. And if there's any way of measuring the thing, I would say that this is even greater and more important than the other one. The two, of course, are connected. This is the book Education, page 65. And if you forget everything else we studied tonight, I wish you'd remember this one sentence. It's just one sentence. But it's the key to the whole thing. In the military schools of Egypt, Moses was taught the law of force. And so strong a hold did this teaching have upon his character that it required 40 years of quiet and communion with God and nature to fit him for the leadership of Israel by the law of love. That's it. That's it. So he had to go to Midian. He had to become a shepherd. 
He had to unlearn the law of force that he'd learned in the military schools of Egypt. And he had to learn the law of love. And in the councils of heaven, it was decided that the best way to do that, and the fastest way, for God never wastes any time, was to put Moses at the work of herding sheep for 40 years. Oh, friends, can it be that that law of force is so terrible that it needs to be gotten rid of in that radical way? And can it be that it is so subtle that it takes all that time to accomplish it? So it seems. It's interesting how God worked to teach Moses those lessons. Somehow I can just imagine Moses when he starts out there with Jethro. Providence of God, he was led out there to Midian, found Jethro, became a shepherd. Now I can imagine him starting out. He was used to getting things done, Moses was. And I can imagine him ordering those sheep around. <laughs> you can imagine what happened. The sheep didn't know how to relate themselves to that. They weren't used to that. And probably Moses didn't have any lieutenants or sergeants like he'd had down in Egypt to see that his commands were carried out. He just had the sheep. And I suppose many a time he thought, these things don't know how to obey. Trouble was he didn't know how to command. Do you know that's the trouble with a lot of parents and teachers, administrators? They think the sheep don't know how to obey when they don't know how to command. It took Moses 40 years to learn how. I was interested in this statement here in Patriarchs and Prophets 247. Before he could govern wisely, he must be trained to obey. Well, couldn't he govern wisely? Down in Egypt, he thought he could, and the nation thought he could, and the king thought he could. Moses thought he could. But out there with the sheep, none of it worked at all. He had to learn an entirely new system of how to govern, how to direct, how to get obedience. God said, Moses, you can practice on sheep and lambs. And it took him 40 years. Do you know why it took him so long? Well, I read it here. It's because he'd been so long down in Egypt in those schools where force was the rule. In the military schools of Egypt, Moses was taught the law of force. And so strong a hold did this teaching have upon his character that it required 40 years of quiet and communion with God and nature to fit him for the leadership of Israel by the law of love. I think that's wonderful, friends. In page 248 of Patriarchs, it says, The habits of caretaking, of self-forgetfulness, and tender solicitude for his flock 
would prepare him to become the compassionate, long-suffering shepherd of Israel. Dear ones, are you more like Moses at 40 years of age or more like Moses at 80 years of age? Can you sing the song of Moses? It's a song of love, my friends. A song of love. A wonderful song of love. I want to read a few comments from this book, Fundamentals of Christian Education. Page 342. Unless you know, you'd be surprised to know the name of this chapter. What do you suppose it is? Speedy preparation. That's right. That's the name of the chapter. And it's warning against taking long courses of study. And right in the middle of page after page of the most earnest warning against long courses of study, we find these comments on how long it took God to train Moses out there in the desert. I wonder why. Well, there's a connection. It isn't accidental nor incidental. It all belongs together. You can study it. But tonight we're studying about Moses. Moses supposed that his education in the wisdom of Egypt had fully qualified him to lead Israel from bondage. This is 342. What did Moses suppose? That his education had fully qualified him. Was he not learned in all the things necessary for a general of armies? Had he not had the greatest advantages of the best schools in the land? Yes, he felt that he was able to deliver them. He was ready. He first set about his work by trying to gain the favor of his own people by redressing their wrongs. He killed an Egyptian who was imposing upon one of his brethren. In this he manifested the spirit of him who was a murderer from the beginning and proved himself unfit to represent the God of mercy, love, and tenderness. He made a miserable failure of his first attempt. Like many another, he then immediately lost his confidence in God and turned his back upon his appointed work. He fled from the wrath of Pharaoh. He concluded that because of his mistake, his great sin in taking the life of the cruel Egyptian, God would not permit him to have any part in the work of delivering his people from their cruel bondage. But the Lord permitted these things that he might be able to teach him the gentleness, goodness, long-suffering, which it is necessary for every laborer for the master to possess. I wonder if there's anybody here that's made any failures in trying to work for God. I wonder if there's anybody that because of some failure you've made, you've become discouraged and concluded that you can't do anything or at least can't do much. Take courage, brother. Moses made a failure, a miserable failure of his first attempt. After he'd gotten all ready for 40 years, then and he started out to do a great work, it's a flat failure. He was so discouraged, he quit. Thought it was all through. But, oh, friend, God was using that very disappointment, that apparent defeat, to take the self-inflation, the self-exaltation out of Moses. 
to lead him to put aside the sword, to put aside force and human pressure and dogmatic, bigoted authority, to put aside all that sort of thing and to learn the sweet, loving care and burden-bearing and solicitude of the shepherd. It took him 40 years to learn it, so God thought he had it learned. Oh, if there's one lesson I long to learn tonight, that's it, friends. You can give it various names. Unselfishness, self-denial. It just boils down to this, friends, to be thinking about how to help others instead of how to advantage yourself. You know what Moses had been taught to expect down in Egypt? 343 of this book, Fundamentals. Moses had been taught to expect flattery and praise because of his superior abilities. Some people today think that's what they ought to have. They're used to having people clap or do something to show how great they are. But now Moses was to learn a different lesson. As a shepherd of sheep, Moses was taught to care for the afflicted, to nurse the sick. Yes, Moses took a medical missionary course with sheep for patients. Moses was taught to care for the afflicted, to nurse the sick, to seek patiently after the straying, to bear long with the unruly, to supply with loving solicitude the wants of the young lambs and the necessities of the old and feeble. Oh, surely, surely Moses, with all his talent, if they were going to ask him to be a shepherd, they didn't add insult to injury by insisting that he look after old and feeble sheep, did they? By the very idea. There ought to have been some hired hands that could look after that. They had to use Moses for a shepherd. They should have at least seen that all the sheep he took care of were in good shape so that he didn't have so much trouble. No, God was arranging this. As a shepherd of sheep, Moses was taught to care for the afflicted to nurse the sick, to seek patiently after the strain, to bear long with the unruly, to supply with loving solicitude the wants of the young lambs and the necessities of the old and feeble. Oh, God, help us to learn it. To care for others, to be interested in others, to want to serve others, to go after the stray, to help the sick, to comfort the sad and discouraged, and to bear long with the unruly, to bear long with the unruly. I hope you'll study these three chapters that I'm quoting from, this one in Patriarchs and Prophets, the one in Education, and this one in Fundamentals. I only have time this evening to just select a few of the many gems here. 
It'll take more than 40 minutes to cover 40 years, I can tell you that. And merely because we memorize even these quotations doesn't necessarily mean that we have graduated from the University of Midian, where Moses took his postgraduate work. What were the two things that he learned down in Egypt, that he unlearned out in Midian? Oh, down in Egypt, he learned the world's philosophy to reason things out and to do only what was reasonable. But out in Midian, he learned something different, something entirely different. Page 344. Moses lost his self-confidence. He was willing to obey God's commands whether they seemed to his human reason to be proper or not. That was the lesson of faith, wasn't it? He came to the place where he did what God said, whether there was any sense to it, as far as he could see or not. That's why he could lead his people right down there to the Red Sea. That's why he could lead them right through the Red Sea. That's why he could lead them out in the desert when he knew there wasn't anything out there for a million and a half people to eat. That's why he could lead them right out there by the flinty rocks where he knew there wasn't enough water to keep them and their cattle from starving. Step by step all through the 40 years with Israel, he was following God instead of human reason. Oh, friends, but we don't need that today, do we? No. We have so much light and knowledge and inventions. There's so many discoveries in sciences of all kinds that all we have to do, whether it's in nutrition or medicine or education or anything else, is just to learn the wonderful discoveries that have been made and apply them. If that's our thinking, we're somewhere along where Moses was down in Egypt. Took him 40 years to unlearn it, friends. We'd better be unlearning fast, my friends. Don't misunderstand me. I wouldn't for a minute suggest that there is nothing in modern discoveries in medicine or nutrition or education or psychology or all these other sciences. I wouldn't for a moment suggest that there isn't some truth in all those things. The problem is to know which is truth and which is error. May I tell you something that a good doctor friend of mine told me not long ago? And if this were in a different setting, it might make you smile, but I'm not telling it to make you smile, friends. He told it for fact, and I don't doubt him. And if it weren't so serious, it would be plain silly and laughable. But listen, this is what he told me. He said that recently, at a medical college, the doctor in a certain class at the close of the year said to the students, he said, fellows, I'm sorry, I have to make a confession to you students. He said, half of the things that I've taught you this year aren't so. But he said, I have another confession to make that's worse than that. I don't know which half it is. I don't know which half it is. He said, I don't know which half it is. 
Oh, yes, friends, there's no question but what there's a great deal of truth in, in these discoveries in all these different fields of science and research. And there was a great deal of truth in what Moses learned down in Egypt. Did you know that? You can read that in these chapters I'm referring to here. A great deal of truth. Moses' problem was that he had the truth and the error mixed up, and that's the problem today. And it took him 40 years to get it sorted out, my friend. 40 years to get it sorted out. It'll take us more than 40 minutes, I can tell you that. And oh, do you know how he did it? When he got out there with the word and the works of God, he wrote the book of Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit out there. And he was surrounded with those mountain peaks like Horeb and others at the Sinai Peninsula. He led his flocks to the green valleys, to the springs. And there in those mountain solitudes, the grandeur of Egypt faded out as the grandeur of God became more and more real. And I suggest, friends, that if we are to be delivered from the peril of rationalism, from the peril of exalting reason above faith, we too must have our minds saturated with the inspired revelations of the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. And we too must bring our souls in contact, not occasionally and spasmodically, but oh, my friends, as Moses did, we must bring our souls in contact with the works of God's creation. We must let the influence of these hills and valleys be strong upon our hearts. Oh, I pray that we may know why we are where we are. And that we may take not tiny little teaspoon doses, but that we may drink these things in by the gallon, the word of God and the works of God. Page 360 of this Fundamentals, I read, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He received an education in the providence of God, but a large part of that education had to be unlearned and accounted as foolishness. Its impression had to be blotted out by 40 years of experience in caring for the sheep and the tender lambs. Now comes this next sentence, which has impressed my heart very much. If many who are connected with the work of God could be isolated as was Moses and could be compelled by circumstances to follow some humble vocation until their hearts became tender, they would make much more faithful shepherds than they now do in dealing with God's heritage. They would not be so prone to magnify their own abilities or seek to demonstrate that the wisdom of an advanced education could take the place of a sound knowledge of God. And so, friends, I submit to you that we need to be saved from the world's wisdom, which is foolishness, and from that selfish use of force, which is the devil's substitute for heaven's power of love. May we bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father, 
As thou hast bidden us, we have considered the experience of Moses. And as we see that dear man taking those flocks with him through those hills and valleys, learning to care for the unruly, to nurse the sick, to nurture the old and feeble, to bear with the young lambs, and to care for all with a tender loving solicitude. We pray that thou wilt help us to see thy providence in the humble and simple and burdensome tasks that thou dost assign to us. May we, like Moses, be so saturated with thy word and thy works that the wisdom and the influence of Egypt shall be blotted out of our lives. And may we come to the place where, like Moses, we can love as Jesus loves. May we learn to plead for Israel as Moses pled for them. And may we someday soon see that dear man and join with him in singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. We ask it for Jesus' sake who died for us. Amen.